Stand with me this morning as we read from Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in Within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in deed or word, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks through Him to God the Father. Lord, I pray that we would come before you with thankfulness that we would be clothed in righteousness. Father, that our lives would demonstrate that we have been chosen by God, not because we're working our way to heaven, but because you have given us works to do, to honor and glorify you. So I pray this morning that we would be encouraged to put on the clothing that you have given pray you would give us wisdom to hear, that your word would find root in our hearts, would bring forth fruit. I pray that our children would hear and that fruit would begin to be born in their lives. I pray, Lord, that you would cause your word to go forth this morning. Give me wisdom and clarity of speech. And Father, we just come against any distractions the devil would try to bring against us hearing your word. We receive this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to imagine you're going on a trip this morning. And the trip is to Portugal. If you don't know where that is, it's it's a small country close to Spain. It's actually kind of surprising that at one point in time, Portugal and Spain were some of the largest navies, and explorers in the world. On one peninsula of the world, you have Spain and Portugal. But I want you to imagine with me, it's present day, and you're going with me to Portugal, and you meet someone there, a nice man and a, a lady, and you strike up a conversation with them, have some good fellowship. And they say, hey, give me your address. I'd, I'd like you to, uh, I'd like to send you something. You say, okay. Seem like nice people. So you arrive back to Shelbyville or my case, Chaplin. And in about three weeks, you receive a letter. You're like, wow. 
The back of the letter is embossed with a wax ring. You're like, what is that emblem? And you open it, and inside there's an invitation. And you start reading, and it says, and then you see the name of the woman and lady that you met. And guess what? They're the king and queen of Portugal. And in the invitation, there's an invitation to the prince. It's his wedding. Now, how many of you all would go <laughs> to that kind of wedding? Yeah? Now, there's only one thing that is very important about this wedding. The dress code. It is formal attire only. Now, how many of you know what that is? Huh? That means tuxedos for the men and elegant gowns for the ladies. Now, let's imagine that you say, I think they'll be okay with me just wearing a, a, a nice suit and a shirt. Maybe like I'm dressed right now. You know, that, that'll be acceptable. I mean, every wedding I've ever been to has never required a tuxedo. Well, actually, I can't be true. <laughs> I have been to one formal wedding in my life. But, I mean, the majority of people don't dress like that. So, the king won't mind if I show up in something else. So you arrive and the other guests don't really seem to notice that you're dressed differently. You still get a seat and the wedding is about to start. But then the king who you met comes by and he says, how did you get in? That is not the attire that I said you must wear to come in to this feast. And he calls the guards of the castle and he throws you out. Now, you probably recognize this story, right? Jesus gave us a parable just like this. He went out into the... He says, the kingdom of God is like unto this. And the king went out into the byways. And the people who were invited didn't want to come. They were too busy. They had too much money to make. But then he said, invite everyone. And so you got invited. You say, well, what's the big deal? I, I'm dressed really nice. But what did, what did the invitation say? Formal attire only. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with this passage. Well, when Paul starts verse 12, he says, in the Greek we actually have put on first, in the, the Greek order. But in, the, in this text, because of the way English works, it's actually better to do it this way. So we, we start with, so, or really this could be translated, therefore. In light of the fact, verse 11, if you look up, 
In light of the fact that Christ is all and in all, so if He is in you, if you have put on Christ, if you have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, so in light of that, as those who have been chosen. Now, does that mean that there are people who are not chosen? Yes. This word translated chosen is the actual root of the word elect. If you look up in the Greek, it's a transliteration of the word. It's electo in, in Greek. So it's those chosen by whom? Well, we have the answer of God, not chosen of our own choice, not at random. God didn't have a wheel of fortune upstairs in heaven, and he had names on it and said, let's spin the wheel and see who makes it. No, God chose us. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says this, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. He didn't choose you because you were an amazing group of people. Because you were numerous. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But then He says, But... Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God did not bring the whining slaves out of Egypt because they deserved it. He did it because He loved them and because He told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that He would do that. Because God keeps His Word. We are loved not because of what we have done, but because God has chosen to set His love on us. Ephesians chapter 2, we're close there, so turn there with me. Just a few pages over. Ephesians chapter 2. I wasn't going to read this whole section, but I think it is good. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This was you. Among them too all, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Last week's sermon, we were doing all those things. We deserve the wrath of God. But God, this is the biggest statement that we should remember in Scripture. 
When it says, but God, that is for our good. If it did not say, but God, we would have no good. But God, being rich in mercy. Guess what? This is going to be one of the uh, characteristics that we're to take on, to put on. Rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. It was His love. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've quoted this recently. So that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then we have this statement, which is what I was originally going to quote. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift. This is key. The gift. It is given as a gift. The gift of God. And that not of yourselves. It is not a result of works. Why would God not want to make it a part of work? So that no one may boast. Well, I'm here because I did this. Right? Did any of y'all have those kind of feelings when you were in the world? Maybe in middle school? Well, I'm up here getting an award because I had the best paper. Or I did the best math calculations. Or I have this beautiful drawing that I did. Or I built this cabinet, you know, in shop class. You know, that's natural tendency. That's our natural sin nature. We, we want to be recognized for what we have done. But God is saying, if it had been for your works, you would still be in sin. This was not of works. For we are His workmanship. We are the result of His works. That's exciting to me. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Well... You just said it's not of works. No, it's in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That means that when we were chosen, Colossians chapter 3, by God, He chose us with good works in mind for us. Not through our own strength, but through Christ in us. So go back to Colossians, chapter 3. So we have been chosen of God for a specific purpose. Chosen to what, may I ask? What do you think is the number one thing that people say that we're chosen or elect to? 
Salvation. Right? We, we all agree that to that. But it's not just that. We see multiple times in Scripture where we are chosen by God for a specific call. Whether it's pastoral, some kind of a ministry in the church. We're all called to be ambassadors of Christ. We're all called to be priests of our home, the fathers especially. We're a royal priesthood. The call, the election of God is not primarily and only eternal. It is both eternal and finite. It is both in heaven and on earth. God does not call us to live as though we don't have a heaven to look forward to. Right? Isn't that how the world looks at the Christian life? I don't know about you, but there are lots of celebrities now becoming Christians. Not saying they're all, but they're famous people. Not sure I should name names, but oftentimes they become Christians, but their life does not change. Maybe they're less wild. Maybe they're, they're a little bit less um, of a party animal. They don't, they don't show as much, as much skin on, on, on their Instagram profiles. Maybe, maybe they go to church on Sunday. But oftentimes, for them, Christian, the Christian life is just a little addition on the side to make you feel better. And I'm not saying all these people aren't believers, okay? I, I don't know their hearts. I don't know what God is doing in their life. Because if you're surrounded by sin in the industry that you work in, especially these these movie stars and such, it's going to take a minute for them to realize that this is not normal. This is not the way God created us to be. So there should be grace in our hearts that to give time. But all that said, we are chosen of God to be His. And we see that here especially. Holy and beloved. That's, that follows chosen of God, holy and beloved. Holy and beloved here are describing what it's like to be chosen. Holy. What does that word mean? Most people think it means pure, which in a sense it does. But in reality, what he's saying here is holy, set apart to God. That's what makes you pure. When you're His child, when you're His and you are set apart for Him, then your life will be purified in serving Him. So when God calls you, you will be set apart. You will be different. There will be dramatic change. I can think of a celebrity that I've seen dramatic change, and I pray that it continues. But 
if the change doesn't continue, if, if we stop changing, if we continue, if we have some change, but then it stops, then we're going back to the world, right? Because as believers, there's no point at which we arrive and say, yep, I'm, I made it, I'm good. No, not till we see Him face to face. Not till we're standing in His presence. But not only are the chosen of God holy, they are beloved or loved by Him. His dear love. And this is the motivation for putting on different attire. Because this morning's message is titled, Clothed for Life. Clothed for Life. Because last week, we had to take off all that was wicked, putting to death the flesh, the old man. Why? So that we could put on what God has for us. It's not enough for Christians to say, yo, I don't do that. No, we need to say, we do this. We put this on. Because if you do just one or the other, you're just putting nasty good clothes over a nasty mess. You know, can, can you imagine I go wallow with the pigs and I'm like, oh, here, I'll just put my suit coat on. I'll be all okay. You think they're going to be smelling me at the, at the ball, at the wedding? You'd be like, where's that smell coming from? Well, I might look good, but underneath it's all filth. You know, we can put on a good show. And a lot of people will think we're good, but the king of kings... He knows who are His. He can see through what we think is Christian attire. And I'm not talking about... So Matthew 22, in verse 11, so it says, When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend... How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Why do you think the man was speechless? Because he knew better. He knew he couldn't come in to the wedding feast without wedding clothes. Then what did the king say? Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, in that place where weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. They were called, but they didn't walk the walk. There was not a lifestyle that reflected that they were chosen and elect by God. This word here in verse 11, not dressed, that's the exact same word as put on. It's a different um, conjugation, but it is the, the same word that's used, same root word that's used in Colossians verse 3 when it says put on. It's almost exclusively used in the New Testament to describe putting on clothing. So when 
Paul says, put on, he's saying, put these on as though they're garments. You know, heart of compassion, that might be your undergarments. Your underwear. Because that's what starts. If you don't start there, then you're going to have problems. Because you can do what you think is right, but if you don't put on a heart of compassion, then the other things will be false. This, the literal translation is bowels of mercy. In the King James, I think that they translate it that way. What's, why does it say that? Because it's, it's that feeling that comes within you. Just think of this. What do you think? So we read through this list. A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Who does this describe? Anybody want to answer me? Who does this describe? Jesus. Jesus. What's Paul saying? Put on Christ. That's what he's saying. Because Christ is the only one who had a heart of compassion. How many times in the New Testament do you remember him it saying, and he was moved with compassion? Many times. His motivation was not, I want to be famous. His motivation wasn't, oh, uh, I want to make myself feel good. No, he had compassion. He had genuine love for the people. And so he was moved to do what he would do. Healing, feeding, speaking the truth. So it starts there. It starts with a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy. And this heart of compassion shouldn't be relegated only to the poor. Jesus, when he saw the rich young ruler, was it says that he loved him. He had compassion on him, but that young man couldn't take it. Our love should not be based on the, the financial, whether good or bad. You know, they may be broke, broke, but we should love them. They may be, you know, the Elon Musk of our community. But they need Jesus just as much as the broke guy that is doing drugs on the street. They both need Jesus. But are we just as compassionate for one or the other? Maybe we lean, oh yeah, he would be, make a great Christian. No, he wouldn't. If Jesus doesn't get a hold of them, it doesn't matter how much money or how nice the person is. The people who make great Christians are the ones that God calls and He elects to follow Him, whether rich or poor, ugly or beautiful. We can't decide who God can really use. He does. He knows. He has chosen before time. Our call is to reach 
out with a heart of compassion. To show the love of Christ to them. So it starts with a heart of compassion. Those undergarments. Then he gives us kind of two groupings. Kindness and humility. And then gentleness and patience. You know, they're very similar words. J.B. Lightfoot groups them like he said this. He says, kindness and humility are two words that describe the disposition of the Christian mind in general. It reflects, it either affects our relationship to others, kindness, or our estimate of self, humility. Right? So, kindness is our relationship with others, how we treat others. And humility is a right understanding of who we are. Not inflating ourselves, which would be pride, or deflating ourselves, which is false humility. It is seeing through Christ who we really are. Who He has made us to be. But these both flow from a heart of compassion. Because without a heart of compassion, kindness will not flow from us. And if we think that we'll be humble without a heart of compassion, that's just it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't happen. You could imagine the these two things, kindness and humility, kind of being your outer garments. Right? Your Maybe you're going out on a winter day and you put on that big coat, that big jacket. That's what, that's what everybody sees. And the second set, gentleness and patience, he says, they denote the exercise of the Christian temper in its outer bearing towards others. That is, gentleness is the opposite of rudeness or harshness, right? And... Patience is the opposite of resentment, revenge, or wrath, which we talked about that last week. Like a lot of these attributes are the reverse of what we're putting off. Just because you put it off doesn't mean these things start to happen. We need to be intentional as believers. Lord, give me a heart of compassion. Have you ever looked at somebody and had... Not kind thoughts about them? Am I the only one? (laughs) Joel's back here like, yeah, I never had that problem. (laughs) No, we all have dealt with that. What, What caused it? Who knows? It could be the way they treated you. It could be the way that they put them, you know, kind of put themselves out there. Maybe the way that they do business. Maybe the way that they dress or the way that they don't dress. It could be all those things. But when we are in Christ, He changes our heart. He gives us a heart that loves like He loves. 
Because we've been set apart. We're His. And when we're abiding in Him, He flows out through us. And we can actually be kind. And want to be kind. We have humility, not false humility. We don't walk around, just, just so you know. You don't walk around and tell everybody, oh, I am so humble. That's when they know you're not. <laughs> just because we talk about humility does not make us humble. Humility is a realization that without Christ, we are nothing. We wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be where we are in our life if it weren't for Him. When we have a realization of what Christ has done in our lives, it creates humility. And some may say, well, gentleness, that's just natural. It is not. I have kids. And you know what the first thing you have to teach a two-year-old older sibling Huh? Don't bite. Yeah, that's one of them. But be gentle. I know with every one of our kids, the, the youngest kid has the hardest time when we have a new baby. You say, be gentle. Don't. They're like, they don't understand that that hurts. So gentleness is not a natural trait. It is something that we have to be taught. And it's taught by the Lord. It is, again, it goes back to relationship with Christ. If we are not in Christ, if we are not abiding in Him and, and, and taking from the vine, then these things will not happen. It's just not, it's, it just won't happen. Because if we are not in Him, we will not be kind. We will not be humble. He is our example. We're putting on Him. And we have to ask Him, Lord, what is it in me that just wants to be known and recognized? Expose it so that I can be like you. You know, this word here, translated gentleness, is also translated meek. You know what most people think the word meek means? Weak. You know, if you're humble, meek, patient, you're weak. But that's not the truth. It says that Jesus was lowly, humble, and meek. Can you think of a time when somebody would have thought, man, Jesus is not being very meek right now? Flipping tables? You think that was thought of as meek? It was. Jesus never sinned. Meek doesn't mean we just sit back and let people talk and do wickedness with no words. Doesn't mean we sit back and say, you know what? Yeah, it's okay for Christians to run around and say that abortion is okay. It is not. I'm not afraid to say that, and that doesn't make me less meek. Not that I'm, I'm still a work in progress, so. But as believers, when we see sin, meek does not mean just sitting back and acting like nothing's going on. It means confronting it in love, with humility. Right? 
Because it's easy to sit back and say, you know what? Caleb said that, but I don't want to be the cause of a problem. No, you should address. If I say something from the pulpit that needs to be addressed, you should address it. If Joel says something from the pulpit, same thing. Mr. Lanham, whoever is is sharing with us, we need to be, as a church, faithful enough to say, you know what, this... That, I don't think that was right. And maybe we say it pu- privately and it gives that person an opportunity to, to repent in public. Maybe we need to say it in public, depending on how gross of a, a statement it may be. But as believers, we have a call in meekness and gentleness and humility and kindness to help one another in this way. To speak against sin. I mean, Jesus, when He was talking to the Pharisees, whitewashed tomb is not a nice um, nickname. Right? That's essentially what He's doing. He's, 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 he's nicknaming them. Y'all are like whitewashed tombs. I can't imagine them saying, oh, Jesus, you're so kind to us. Oh, that just felt so good inside. No, but he was being honest. That didn't make him less meek. Gentleness and patience. How many of you have arrived in the patience category? Maybe the grandparents here, right? I thought I was patient till I had kids. Then I realized, wait, I'm more patient with adults when they do me wrong than kids when they, they do me wrong. Why is that? I don't totally understand. I'm still going through that. But as believers, patience is one of the most unnatural sin problems that everyone deals with. Have you ever been in the Lowe's parking lot and had somebody cut you off for a parking spot? No, just me? Oh. Or was leaving a parking lot and the person coming in like cut the corner and then you see them drop the F-bomb because you were in their way? Oh, just me? You know, my pride rose up and said, hmm, I got a car that wouldn't dent if I hit you. You know, that, that was, I know that that's not a right thought, but that's the thought that came in my head immediately. I'm going to be, imp- I'm going to show you impatience. You see that pretty car you're driving, it's made of thin metal and, you know, I just hit it a little bit, it's, it's going to look really ugly. Thankfully, God calmed me down. That's not a Christian behavior. The Christ in me said, mm-mm, that's not a Christian behavior. Or are you driving behind somebody and the moment the yellow light, like they're about to cross the, the line and the yellow light comes on and they're just like, stop. And you're like, what? You had like five whole seconds to get across. We, I, we could have both made it. 
Oh, you don't. Uh, apparently, I'm the only one who has patience problems. <laughs> but we need Christ to change us. We become patient as we know Him. We realize His patience with us. The more I raise kids, the more I realize how much patience God has with me. The more I realize that I am less patient with them than He is with me. And I have to repent. Lord, I, I am not showing them the same kind of patience and forgiveness that you have shown me. You know, interestingly, Paul goes there, right? Verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And he, further down he says, Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He is our example. He is our clothing that we put on. You know, clothing came into being. Why? Why did God bring clothing into the world? Do you remember? Sin. Disobedience. Genesis 3.21 The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them to cover their shame. He gave them clothing even though they had sinned against Him. But that's not the last time that that God does that. In Isaiah 61.10 it says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God dresses His people. He cares about how we look. Not in the physical realm. We're talking about the spiritual and in the character area. Look with me at Ezekiel verse 16. You may be wondering, like, why are we going back to this clothing part? Because I think this is an important part of... So Ezekiel 16... So here, Ezekiel is prophesying about what, has, what God is about to do. They've been unfaithful. They don't deserve what he's about to do. And it says, Then I passed by, and I, I, I saw you. In verse 8, You were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. They were acting as harlots and prostitutes. And yet God spread His skirt over. Remember, that's the exact same terminology that was used of Boaz and Ruth. Right? She said, will you spread your skirt over me? The idea is, will you be my covering? I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you 
so that you became mine, declares the Lord. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. Man, I haven't seen those before. It's probably illegal now. (laughs) Uh, And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace upon your neck. Now this this will be really good. I also put a ring in your nostrils and your earrings in your ears. <laughs> These are some very uh, very jeweled up women. And a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your breast was a fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on the account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What beauty the God that God gave. But there's a problem. Verse 15, he says, but. Uh-oh. What happened? But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. I think Paul in Colossians chapter 3 is just as concerned for the church at Colossae. Because this is, verse 8 through 14 is, is a description of what happens when God saves us. Brings us out of the world. But many in the church and those false teachers in Colossae are trying to draw them back into the world. Oh, now that you're all cleaned up and pretty, come on out here with the blessings God has given you. How many of us have seen that? The Lord blesses someone when they come out of the world, and then over time they go right back in. And I think that is what Paul is concerned about. If they don't put on this, put on Christ, if Christ is not everything to them, if He is not their clothing, then they will end up just like the people in Colossae. And so they need to put on Christ, they need to bear with one another. This is carry one another's load. That's the idea. Can we do that for one another? Are we comfortable enough with one another to share our physical, spiritual, and emotional needs with one another? I'm not saying we all need to write it up on the wall. Obviously, we need to develop trust with one another. But that should be a point in the Christian life. We should be as open with one another as we would be with our closest family member. I'm not saying husband and wife. I'm saying, you know, a daughter with a mother or or a father. We should be able to be open without fear that Joel's going to turn around and tell everyone what I shared with him. He hasn't done anything, okay? Just using him because I know he can handle it. He can bear it. But we need to bear with one another. We need, we need to be ready to 
be patient. Because these are all, this is an explanation of, of really what patience is. It's, it's bearing with one another, realizing, you know what? Joseph is still growing. So if I have frustration with him, I need to pray about it. Ask God, Lord, is this a bearing moment or a speaking moment? Maybe it's a forgiving moment. Look at he says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And he, he goes on, he says, whoever has a complaint against you. This word complaint is also translated grievance. It's like a debt that is owed. Have you ever loaned a tool? Or, this is for the guys, or for the ladies, a nice um, dish and either never received it or received it back dented or broken? I have. Or you loaned it and they said, oh, I lost it. What was your response? Where's a replacement? You know, I bought that pampered chef thing and I can't find them anywhere anymore. And now I have none and you broke it. Oh, oh sorry. That wasn't me. That was someone else I know. Right? I loaned this, this to you and you broke it and you didn't return it in the order that you left it in. That's my ox. Don't you know the Old Testament? If you break, if you kill my ox, then you got to give me yours. We need to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. That's how he ends that section. Does that mean that we shouldn't admonish someone who has borrowed from us and didn't return it in good order? Do we just keep quiet and say, I'm just never going to loan to them ever again? I'm sure none of you have done that. Maybe it would have been better to say, I'm, I'm forgiving you for this one. And I want to, to loan something to you again. But you do realize as a Christian, we should be taking care of things we borrow. And you're a servant to the lender, remember? <laughs> but we, sh- we should be admonishing another instead of, and, for, and truly forgiving Because if you say, I will never loan it to them again, loan anything, what are you saying? I cannot forgive you. I cannot trust you. And I know that's hard. I have had that attitude towards someone. Thankfully, I haven't, most people don't ask me to borrow stuff, but... um, As believers, not allowing someone to borrow from you again, especially in the church, is saying, I don't forgive you. I can't forgive you. You If it goes to that house, it's never coming back. That's never been said. You know, when Jesus, when Paul says here in, in 12, 
put on. Do you know that's a command? It is not optional. Clothe yourselves. You're not walking out the door with that on. That sounds like your your teenage childhood days. You can't go out the door without shoes on. You can't do that without that on. That's what he's saying. As believers, we must put on. And he ends in verse 14, he says again, he says, Beyond all these things, what are all these things? That list, forgiving, patience. Beyond that, put on love. Put on love. So maybe we could actually say love is the the outermost garment. Maybe it's your hat you put on. Put on love. Why? Why do we need... You know, we've already talked about all these things. Why why love? He says, which is the perfect bond of unity? You want unity in the church? You want unity in your relationship with others? who are Christians, maybe not in this local church, but in other churches, you want to have unity with other believers, it is only found in love. It is the perfect bond. You know, the best glue out there cannot compare to the bonding that love brings. When you love someone, you're willing to bear with them. You're willing to suffer You're willing to take a loss. When you love someone, 1 Corinthians 13 is the way you treat them. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, but you're unwilling to be separated from them. You say, you know what? I told my wife I would love her till the day I died. Or she died. And I'm not really ready to kill her. So we got to work this out. Right? Maybe you're the one that wants to get in the fight and you're, and you're like, oh, i got to calm down. Or maybe you're the one that says, I'm just going to hide my feelings until I explode. Well, you have to say, no, I need to talk. We need to have this conversation. Because I love them, and I know that the more I hold this back, and I, I don't, we don't talk about this and, and have forgiveness and reconciliation, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up. But love will always lead us back to one another. It will always unify us. Not the love of the world, which is in reality lust, It is a love that tells the truth with humility and meekness, kindness, and is patient with one another. Love is an overarching principle for us as believers. So if we've put on these things, what will happen? I think the result is in verse 15. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You want something to rule in your lives? He's saying, let this rule in your your life. Peace that comes from knowing Christ. For being clothed in Christ. Being cleansed by His blood. Because that peace that rules in your hearts, right? What else comes from the heart? Compassion. Heart of compassion. If that is ruling in your life, then you will have true peace. Why? Because you won't have any bitterness. right? You've already forgiven everyone. You're being patient and bearing one another's gifts or uh, difficulties. You're humbly following the Lord. You're being kind because Christ is in you. You're being gentle. I can't imagine you having stress in your life if those things are happening. This is the result of walking in Christ and being clothed in Him. Being in Him. And he says, he says, to which indeed you were called into in one body. We were called together. Christ is our head. The love of Christ in us unifies us. And it brings us together. And as we are functioning as the body of Christ, then we actually begin to experience the peace of Christ not only in our own lives, but in the life of this church. We're at peace because we know we're doing what God has called us to do. We're sharing the good news with our neighbors, with the lost that we encounter every day. The supermarket, at our business, in our school, whatever it may be that we're encountering people every day, we are being Christ, living for Christ. We are being moved with His compassion for the lost, not for a selfish means. Well, I would love for our church to grow so we can be like, look at us. No. That's not the motivation to share the gospel, to invite someone to SEA. The motivation is love that brings about a heart of compassion that comes from Christ in us. Finally, he says, be thankful. Be thankful. This isn't optional. Just like putting on that list, putting on that clothing, Clothing ourselves with Christ is not optional. Being thankful is not an option. It is a requirement for being a Christian. How often are your prayers led with thankfulness? I've been, this is not a sense of 
I'm not pride, I'm not trying to be prideful about this, but I've been seeking to be more thankful, spend more time thanking God than asking. It doesn't mean it's always that's always happening. There's things going on in our life, but the devil would love for us to forget what God has done. Because he knows if we remember and are thankful, then our faith will come to, to pass. Our faith will grow because we'll remember, oh, God did that. Oh, and he did that. And he did that. And he did what? Oh, my goodness. I, I, I can't even count the numbers of times God has done something for me. Why wouldn't he do it now? When we're going to pray, have a heart of thanksgiving, thanking him. The, the literal translation is, show yourself thankful. There needs to be actual action. You say, well, I'm thankful. I'm thankful all the time. Well, act like it. If you're being impatient with people, does that show gratitude? Nope. If you can't forgive someone, does that show thankfulness? No. There is a way in which we live that shows that we are thankful for what God has done in our lives. And finally, in 16 and 17, we see something that is beautiful. In my opinion, He said, let the peace of God rule in your life. And now he's saying, let the word of God dwell within you. Open the doors. Can you imagine? The word of God just dwelling in your heart. Just overflowing out of you and in you. What did Jesus say about people? How they would know that they were his. There's two things. They would love his own, and they would keep these words of mine, is what he said. If the word of God is dwelling richly, not poorly, richly. That's why I did the whole that whole Psalm 119. I want the word of God to dwell richly in me. I want, I want the word of God to just overflow like a spring in my heart. I want it to be my life and my delight. And Paul is encouraging the church, let this this flow in you richly, dwell with you. Not in the church, in you, within you. And with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So as that, that is, is richly dwelling in you, as, a, as, as though you're the house in which the Word of God lives, the Word of Christ, you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. That means that I can learn from someone who has never stood behind this pulpit. 
I can learn something from Mr. Guillory. Mr. Wazork. My, da- my dad has some. Joseph. Mr. Lant. We all have an ability to encourage one another. To admonish one another. To teach one another. And this flows out of us as the word of Christ dwells in us. If Christ is dwelling in us, his word is finding a home within us, then we will teach one another and admonish one another to keep going. You see me feeling depressed, you're saying, you can do it. Remember, Christ said this. You will in this world encounter trouble, but don't give up. I have overcome the world, and I will be with you until the end of the age. That's two quotes together, just so you know. If you go looking for that verse. <laughs> but we have the word in us. It is, it's dwelling in us. And, and then when the time comes to, to admonish one another and to teach one another as a body, we have it there. It's, just, it's in a storehouse. Just ready to flow out. Because we're abiding in Christ and He has clothed us with these things. And how do we how do we do these? Well, he says with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I didn't know that you could teach with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs and singing. Did you know that? Yes. That's why lyrics and 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 hymns are so important. Or any, any song we sing, what are the lyrics saying about God? And what are they saying about us? Because when the lyrics are bad, they're defining God either wrongly or man wrongly. Maybe they're redefining what sin is. But when it's a good song, it can transform the way you think about God. So somehow, everyone here could encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It sounds to me that as we sing together, we bring songs and hymns and spiritual songs to this place. When we sing together, that will teach and admonish us. Not just, not just preaching. They both have value in the church. They're both intentional. Have you ever been singing a song and then a, a lyric hits you in it and you're just like, wow. I've never, I've never thought of it that way. There's actually a song that I'm going to send to Joe. I just thought about this song. I just heard this week. I'm going to try to send it back to Joe and we'll listen to it at the end of the sermon. Because it encouraged me about the, the victory that Christ had over death and sin in the grave. 
But we can encourage one another in this way because the word of Christ is dwelling in us and it, it just flows out in, in song. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> Mr. Lamb saying, right here, <laughs> don't ask me to sing. But he still sings. Why does he sing? Because he's thankful. He, he has been given a heart of gratitude. He's seen God's grace. And though we may not think it sounds good to our ears, or he doesn't think it to his own ears, or Granny Faye says, Honey, could you stop singing in the shower? It's, it's hurting my ears at night. I, let me get my earplugs in before you go take a shower. It is a sweet melody to the Lord. Finally, in verse 17, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, so not just what you're saying, but the way you live, what you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You know what? When we say and tell people we're a Christian, we should act like it. We should talk like it. That foul language that we talked about last week, that shouldn't be a part of our lives. Slander, malice, (coughs) anger, impatience. That should not be us. What people should be is, man, that guy is compassionate. That guy's loving. I didn't like what he had to say, but he was right and I needed to hear it. That lady was patient with her kids. I know none of you all have that problem. The women are much more patient, I will say, (laughs) generally, unless it's been a long day. And then by the end of the day, you're like, Lord, I need you. Come, Lord, quickly and judge my children before I do. (laughs) But as believers, our life should reflect who Jesus is. When we have put Him on, we've clothed ourselves with His attributes and His character, then what we do and what we say will give glory and honor to Him. That's what the whole Christian is, follower of Christ. Are you a follower of Christ? Is your life clothed in such a way that you are ready for life in Christ? Are you clothed for life or death? Because if you're clothed for death, you need to be start putting off some things, putting to death some things like we talked about last week. But if you're clothed for life, you are, have died with Christ and rose again with Him, then you can be putting on these things, drawing closer to Christ, making His Word a delight of your heart, because this, this is, a, is, a, is a requirement. It doesn't save us. It's, a, it's an example, and it's a, a work that Christ has done in us, right? We go back to Ephesians chapter 2. He's prepared good works for us so that me, we might walk in them. Because one day, we're going to stand clothed 
before the maker of heaven and earth. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Let's start in verse 9. I wasn't going to read this whole part, but I think it would be good. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. What is what was a what's a tabernacle? A tent. His covering. His clothing over them. His skirt, as we saw earlier. That they will no hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Why? Because he's giving, he's providing those things. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. He's covering them. He's protecting them. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You know, it's interesting. The Bible starts with nakedness that is not shameful. Yet eternity, we will be clothed. And we'll be clothed in robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. In this life, God is telling us to clothe ourselves with Him. The question is, will we take His words to heart? Or will we say, "Mm, I'm fine with just putting off a few things. No. If we will make it. If we will not... Be like the people in Isaiah who had experienced the blessing of God clothing them in beauty and walking away because we thought we were something because of what he had done. If we're not careful, we can fall away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy and grace you gave us on the cross. Thank you for clothing us cleansing us from our wicked filth. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to put on all these things. That our lives would be characterized by patience and compassion, gentleness, kindness, 
forgiveness, thankfulness, love. Lord, that we would show the world who you are. Not because we're perfect, but because you have done a work in us. May our words and our deeds bring praise and honor to your name. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.